a new year, which is really exciting. I always love when people are like, 20, like last year, it was like 2021, everything's going to be better. It's going to wash away everything from 2020. Like midnight comes around and we're all like, no more COVID, no more lockdowns. And 2021 looked a lot like 2020. So he's hoping for a better year. Before we start, I just want to say a prayer. So if you just bow your heads with me. Hey God, thank you so much that we can come here today mask-free, restriction-free, that we have that freedom to meet together in person, to build relationships. Uh, Lord, as we hear the message today, may we latch onto it, may we learn something, may we take something away from it and remember that your grace is complicated and unfair. In your name I pray, amen. So back in 2020, I was unemployed for the whole year. It wasn't until the 23rd of December 2020 that I got a job offer to work in a call centre for Centrelink, um, which is what I've been doing, um, which is what I'm still doing. And so I had a lot of free time. And so I spent a lot of time with my cousin, who's she's now six, so she was about four at the time, and uh, my niece, who was less than one. And I thought, this is brilliant. I'm going to introduce her to Bluey, okay? Yeah, I see Bluey there. So I love Bluey. I have no kids. I have no excuse for watching Bluey, but it is probably one of the greatest shows that has ever come out of Australia. And my favorite episode of Bluey is one called Hammer Barn. Now, Hammer Barn in the Bluey universe is meant to be like Bunnings, okay? And so basically the story starts off with Chili and Bandit, who are the parents, And they look over the fence and they see that uh, one of the characters, whose name is literally Lucky's dad, has a pizza oven. And so, um, you know, Chili's like, the grass is always green on the other side. And Bluey and Bingo come out. And Bluey says, Mom, you can tell I've watched this episode a lot. Mom, Bingo's watermelon is redder than mine. And Bandit goes, no, it's not. And then, you know, Lucky's dad's like, check out my pizza oven. And uh, that's when Bandit's dad's like, we're going to Hammer Barn. So they go to Hammer Barn and Bandit runs off leaving Chili with the kids uh, to go and find the pizza oven, which apparently is in aisle 300. And so Chili's with the girls and everything she puts in the trolley, she has to put two of. So she puts like this, um, I don't know, I think it was like for plants to climb up on. And so Bluey takes it, she puts it in the tree and she's like, ooh, these be our houses and they're going to like start building their little houses and so uh, my favorite part is when Chili grabs two gnomes and puts them in and the first thing that I think it's Bingo says is oh you can be my husband okay so then Bluey's like hey I want a husband too and so Chili goes and grabs one and then Bingo's one has a shovel and so she's like, you can do some yard work. And then Bluey turns to her mom and says, Bingo's husband's better than my husband. <laughs> so then Chili has to go and swap the gnomes over so they have the same. And then it gets to the stage where Chili stops getting two of everything and Bluey doesn't like this. And so she's trying to swap with Bingo for some things and they get into a bit of a fight and Bingo's husband falls out of the trolley and breaks. And Chili's like, this is what happens when you're not happy with what you have. Somebody's husband always gets it. And I was like, it's a good lesson to learn. The whole thing of the, the, the thing is like, 
what is fair. And I resonated it with because, like, if ever Australia got, uh, like, a, a department of fairness, the person that has to be in charge of that needs to be a sibling. And not just any sibling, but one of multiple siblings. So I'm two of number four, oh, of four kids, okay? And my older sister and I were 17 months apart. And when you're close in age to a sibling, it goes one of two ways. You're either super close as thick as thieves, or you hate each other's guts and want to murder each other all the time. We were the second. It got to the stage where if mum would say, you can dish up some ice cream, we would then have to, like the person who dished it up would then have to give it to the sibling who's lower or who didn't dish it up and they would pick which one they wanted. So you couldn't dish up more for yourself because the other one would definitely know. I'm actually surprised we didn't get kitchen scales out, to be honest. One of the, uh, the things of like the it's not fair happened uh, when I was... Uh, 10, I think it was, and my sister, it was her 12th birthday, and uh, I will admit I was not very good at this. My sister got her room redecorated for her 12th birthday. My grandparents rocked up, uh, ready to paint the room, new quilt covers, everything, but I wanted my room redecorated too because I didn't like the colour anymore and it was mermaids, and I was like, I'm 10, I'm too old for that. And so the whole day, I just sulked. I was frowning so much, I'm surprised my face didn't stay like that. We had like a totem tennis thing in the backyard, and I was like, what? I'm surprised the ball didn't come off and go through the window. It was really, really bad, and my parents were not happy with my behaviour, understandably so. I look back, and I'm a bit ashamed of my behaviour too. But it is one of those things where we're always so concerned with what is fair in general. But then we forget that if the situation was reversed... If my room was getting redecorated and my older sister was the one that was going around sulking, I would be like, I think it's perfectly fair. I deserve a decorated room. You're fine. My parents were always like, when you're 12 years old, you'll get your room redecorated. Uh, I never did. We moved house. Um, so <laughs> mm. <laughs> it was all planned. Like, nah. We started renting, so you can't redecorate a rented room. I'm not bitter about it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, Dad. Um, so anyway, it reminds me that when we come to thinking about what's fair, there are a couple of stories about that in the Bible that we're going to look at. And the first one I want to look at is Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn to Jonah chapter 1 for me. Now, I know I spoke to Pastor Cameron earlier when I caught him, and he said he has preached on Jonah. So let's hope that my message is different from his message. If not, it's always good to hear it again. Okay, while you're doing that, uh, so when I was growing up, I grew up as an Adventist. Uh, when we would go to church, and we'd go to church on Sabbath, and then we'd go home, and we were not allowed to watch TV because it's the Sabbath. So my mom realized that, you know, we're children and we like TV. She bought us VeggieTales. Now, back then, VeggieTales was on VHS. Does anybody remember what a VHS is? And they hurt when you drop them on your toe. You don't get that these days. Uh, we, had, we had a lot of VHSs, but we only had about four VeggieTales videos, maybe three. And Sabbath goes for a while. And we were one of those kids that would watch the same movie four times a day. We learned Shrek off by heart. 
We also learnt Josh and the Big Wool from VeggieTales off by heart. And uh, my mum always used to say, like, you know, if you paid more attention to your schoolwork the way you pay attention to VeggieTales, you'd get an A. And I would always reply, if my schoolwork was as exciting as VeggieTales, I would get an A. That's exactly right. But then, then VeggieTales had, like, this big thing where they brought out a movie, and the movie was about Jonah. And because they couldn't, like, show how evil Nineveh was, the illustration they used was fish slapping, which I always thought was weird, but it turns out, I mean, the fish connotation and how Nineveh was obsessed with fish is actually quite theologically accurate. Shocking to me. But for those who aren't familiar with the Jonah story, let me recap it for you. There's this guy named Jonah. He's a prophet of God. He's really well respected. He goes out and he delivers messages all over Israel. One day he wakes up and God says, Jonah, I need you to go to Nineveh and I need you to tell them that they need to repent from their ways. Otherwise, they're going, I'm, they're going to be destroyed. I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah's like, yeah, that seems like a you problem and flees in the other direction. And not only does he flee in the other direction, he flees in the exact opposite direction to Tarshish. And on the way to Tarshish, there's this massive storm that comes around and is freaking everybody out on the boat, but Jonah is below deck, sound asleep, without a care in the world. And then the crew comes down and wakes him up, and they're like, what are you doing? There's a massive storm. You need to come and pray to your God because we're going to die. And so Jonah's like going up there, and everyone's like, what could have caused this? And Jonah's like, I feel like this is now a me problem. And so he goes, yep, it was me. Sorry, guys, I know you've just thrown everything overboard, your livelihood and your income. I was really hoping that would fix it, but it's not. It's actually me. So can you just throw me overboard and we'll get this over and done with? And the crew was like, we don't really want to murder anybody. And Jonah's like, no, 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 just do it. And so the crew throws him overboard. Everything becomes calm. The ship turns around and goes back to Joppa where they came from because now they've got to reload. And Jonah then gets swallowed by a big fish. It wasn't a whale, it was a fish. I just want to point that out. This fish, he's inside this fish for three days. He repents, and then God instructs the fish to spit him out. And then he gets told to go back to Nineveh. He delivers the message to Nineveh. Nineveh repents. Jonah sulks. The end. So that's, that's the story. So now I just want to sort of dive into it a bit. So, first of all, I always thought that when Jonah ran away, it was because he was scared of the Ninevites. These Ninevites were really evil. They did some atrocious things, some of which included boiling people in oil, um, or especially cruel to children and women. Uh, we can't imagine the cruelness that was going on in Nineveh. So I always thought Jonah was like, oh, I don't want to get boiled. So he was running away, but that's not the only reason. Jonah lived in a small town near Nazareth around 8th century BC during an unusual time of peace in Israel. And they had two enemies of the north, the Arameans and the Assyrians, both of which had taken turns assaulting them over the past several decades. But at this time, they seemed to be a bit preoccupied with their own problems. So they figured, let's sort ourselves out before we go to war with anybody else. Israel was 40 years invasion-free, and during this time is when God wanted Jonah to complete their mission. Now, I don't know if you guys know what the capital of Assyria is, but let me educate you. 
capital of Assyria is Nineveh. They were at war with Nineveh. They were a mortal enemy. So to Jonah, to hear that he has to go as a prophet of Israel to Israel's mortal enemy to tell them to change their ways so they don't get destroyed, I'd be like, you know what, like, if I just take my time, I'll probably get destroyed. And we're down to one enemy instead of two. And I think that's what Jonah was really actually thinking. So if we look at Jonah chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 1 to 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Nineveh was 500 miles northeast, yeah, northeast of where he was. Tarshish was 2,300 miles southwest. So Jonah couldn't have picked a further destination if he tried, and this was probably the furthest destination he could get, and I'm betting to think he probably would have gone further when he got to Tarshish. He went to somewhere he wasn't familiar with, and he thought that the people of Nineveh were not worth saving. So then that massive storm comes around and the sailors, they're very superstitious and so they draw lots to see who is responsible. And we find that in verse 8 to 12 where it says, So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What did you do? Or what do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? He answered, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. This terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he'd already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied. It will become calm. I know that this is my fault, that this great storm has come upon us. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried to the Lord, Oh, please do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord have done as you pleased. Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord, and they, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Rather than repent and ask God's forgiveness and plead with the ship to take him as close to Nineveh as possible, which would be the equivalent of taking him to Joppa, because Nineveh is a landlocked city, he instead told them to throw him overboard. This is a God who, it's one of the first stories in the Bible that we see God going outside of Israel to offer, um, to offer grace to Israel's enemy, to offer grace to his chosen enemy. So I'm thinking that if Jonah was like, you know what, God, my bad. I'll do what you say. I'm sorry I didn't realize this was so important to you. Forgive me. Let's go back to the beginning and we'll start this again. I'm positive that God would have been like, cool, let's do this. Storm goes away. Might even offer some wind to get the ship there faster. But he didn't. Jonah was like, I would rather die than admit that I'm wrong. I would rather die than turn around and go back to Nineveh. He owned up to his mistake to the crew, but not to God. 
And then he asked to be thrown overboard. Jonah attempted suicide by sailor because he would rather die. And the storm stopped and the crew had to return to reload because they'd thrown everything overboard in hopes that the ship would survive. He basically was like, sorry crew, you've just uh, thrown away a whole bunch of income for me and my mistake. So the, the story ends there for the crew, but for Jonah, the story had only begun, and as he slipped beneath the waves, he was suddenly met with the realization that God hadn't given up on him just because he had given up on God. And that is something we should all remember. God doesn't give up on you, even if you give up on him. And even broader still, God hadn't given up on Nineveh. We look at verse 17, but the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. And then we go down to verse 10 of chapter 2, and it said, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. It's interesting where this fish is said to have vomited Jonah. It's said to have vomited him at the port where it all began. Now... Uh, a town that is on a sea or a lake or anywhere with fish, it's the busiest place in that town. I always pictured it was like some remote beach and like the fish projectiled him on there, like in Veggie Tales. But it's not. The fish would have gotten really close to the port. It would have then vomited him up in front of all these witnesses. Then this guy gets up He's probably all bleached from the stomach acids. He smells so bad because he's just been in a fish's stomach. And he gets up and he says nothing. And he goes on his way home. I thought it was like also on the shore of Nineveh. But as I was informed by Bickley Church, Nineveh is a landlocked city. So that makes sense. So then... Then we get to, uh, to later on, and uh, in verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I give you. And this time, Jonah obeyed. He's probably got some PTSD. He probably has nightmares about that fish. So he's probably not sleeping well, unlike on the ship where he slept pretty well, which is a miracle in itself because when something's bothering me, I do not, which shows that Jonah was also at peace with his decision to run away. So Jonah starts his journey off to Nineveh. And uh, it's, again, it's 500 miles away, so it takes a little bit of time for him to get there. And now Nineveh is full of 200,000 people. The city takes three days to walk from one end to the other. Jonah gets there on the first day. He spends one day there. He's Stop. Like, he doesn't say a word when he gets there. He doesn't get in there, like, boom, open the doors, megaphone, repent, repent, you're all going to get destroyed. Jonah says nothing. And he walks for about half a day. And then he opens his mouth. And he says a grand total of four words in Hebrew. Just four. And then he turns around and walks out of the city. He doesn't meet with the king, doesn't really gather people around. 
He just simply walks in, says four words, walks out. He doesn't even keep walking in the city. It was like the bare minimum. Have you ever like worked on something, like you have to work on something as a team and there's one person on there that barely does anything? A uni group assignment, it's terrible. Um, and the sheer anger that comes out of you of like, this guy did nothing and yet he's getting credit. He's one of the most famous prophets in the Bible, and we all, like, when I thought of him, I always thought that he was going throughout the city and he was this charismatic guy who managed to turn a whole city. But he said, four words, four words, and then he turned around. But the Ninevites believed God, and it says they believed God, not they believed Jonah. It says they believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on a sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his uh, royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation to Nineveh. By the decree of the kings and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, maybe God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. This worked. This whole repentance thing worked. Now, there's a couple of reasons it worked. One, back then they didn't have Facebook or Instagram or social media, so every bit of gossip was done by word. Now, someone makes the news because uh, I saw a dog was like skateboarding and that made the news. Imagine if a guy got spat out by a fish. I know that a guy got spat out by a whale, but I know like if a guy got spat out by a fish at the busiest place in like the area because Joppa would have been super busy because it was the closest port to Nineveh. So that word would have gone back to Nineveh that this guy got spat out by a fish. They would have described Jonah. They would have found out his name. Here's the thing about Nineveh, is that whenever they conquered a place, they would adopt their god. And the god of the month at the time was a fish. So for them, a god had spat out somebody to come and deliver a message. So they were prime and ready to hear this message. Not only that, uh, about... I think it was like uh, five years earlier, they'd suffered from two major plagues. Kind of like if coronavirus was worse and then like another one came along just as we'd recovered. They'd suffered from two major plagues and they'd had a total eclipse of the sun at the time, which was horrifying, and war was also coming. So they were prime and ready for a message like this. They were like, you know what, all that stuff was probably caused by us anyway. We're ready to be destroyed, so let's just try and change this. Now, this would be a great place to end the story, wouldn't it? You get this prophet who comes in. Well, he does the bare minimum. He says four words. And the town's like, oh, we've got to repent. And the prophet turns around and he walks out. And all of Nineveh's kind of looking at him and being like, thank you. And no, no, Jonah walks out and kind of 
salutes them a bit, has a little smile on his face that he's learned something about grace today. And the story ends there. Except it doesn't end there. Jonah walks out in kind of like a huff and like Nineveh is busy trying to make themselves better. And Jonah decides instead of just turning around and going home, no, he wants to witness the destruction. He wants to witness the suffering of the Ninevite people. So he sits up on the hill and he waits. Now, Nineveh is in the desert, so he's extremely hot. And Jonah's like sitting there waiting, waiting. He's probably talking to God, being like, so when are you going to do it? You know, if you do it at night, can you wake me up beforehand so I can see it all happening? When is it going to happen, God? And God's probably sitting there going, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. You clearly learned nothing in the fish. And sure enough, it doesn't happen. And Jonah's sitting there waiting and he's hot. And, and then this, this tree or this vine comes up to provide him shade. And Jonah's like, oh, thanks, God. Thanks. I deserve that, God, because I went through three days in a fish and then I go and deliver this message to horrible people. I have worked hard, God, so thank you for that vine. And then overnight, uh, a worm comes and it chews through the vine and the vine dies and then Jonah wakes up and he goes, my life is so unfair. Why do bad things happen to good people? And the story ends in such a weird way. Because first of all, in the Bible, chapter 4, verse 1 to 4 says, But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, this is not what I said when I was still at home. That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you're this gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from the sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. It's a bit dramatic. But also at the same time, remember, Jonah is the prophet of Israel. He now has to go home to Israel, and now people are going to find out he saved one of their greatest enemies, and that war may still continue. So there was this huge shame for Jonah, and Jonah was probably terrified about how he was now going to come across and say to his people, yeah, my bad, I saved our enemy. And then verse 9 says, But God said to Jonah, Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do. He said, I'm angry enough to die. I was like, oh, it's teenage Collier right there. But the Lord said, You've, done, uh, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprung up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 100, oh, sorry, it was 120,000. 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? That's where the book ends. With a question. There's no, what happened to Jonah? Did he go home? Did the Israelites get super angry at him and like throw rotten tomatoes? There's no ending to it. It just leaves the story like that. There's no Hollywood ending, and I hate movies that end with a question or a cliffhanger, and there's no sign of a sequel. I just, my brain can't handle it. Now, there's another story that is, and this is one that Jesus tells, and he's telling the story of two sons, one that went and spent his inheritance and ended up coming home, and the other son who was there the whole time working. 
Now, I want to focus on the second one, the one who stayed, because we always pay attention to the one who left when it comes to the prodigal son, but I want to look at the one who stayed. We often see ourselves as the judges, like maybe God missed something. Like when you're a kid and you see your sibling doing something wrong. Now, we used to always go like, Mom, Dad, you know, Jamie's doing something wrong. And then um, my mom used to tell us off for doing that. Um, So then we decided to then loudly proclaim what they were doing. Like, should you really be doing that? In hopes that it would get my parents' attention in order to uh, give the punishment that is required. And if nothing was done, oh, the fair police came out. Luke 15 has, uh, if we look at Luke 15, we refer to this as, as the lost chapter. And a lot of the time when we talk about the parable of the prodigal son, in my Bible it says the parable of the lost son, we often forget that there are two sons in this story. And they are just as lost as each other. Except one has an ending, the other one doesn't. And so we look at the part with the older son. And it says, Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed a fattened calf because he is back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you have never even given me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. This, this, this brother doesn't even want to admit that this guy is his brother. He says, this son of yours, instead of this brother of mine. He tries to distance himself from that. And then the story ends the same way that it ended with Jonah. My son, the father said, you're always with me and I, all, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate, be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. It's a similar ending to that of Jonah. It ends with both God characters, God and Jonah, the father who re- represents God, talking to the Jonah slash older brother, telling him that to be happy that this has happened. This is something to celebrate. And that why should they not get the same love that they give to Jonah and the older brother? I'm comfortable with grace for me. When it comes to grace for others, it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Because here's the thing. No one deserves grace. The story has the same ending. The father gives an invitation to celebrate and understand the grace he's given to his younger son, and then the story ends. There's no Hollywood ending. But wouldn't it be great if there was? Wouldn't it be great if the older son sort of thought about what his father said, and then he went, you know what, he's right. And he walks in, and his younger brother's got his back to him because he's talking to someone, but someone he's talking to stops when he sees the older brother and every hush falls over the crowd. The father looks like he's about to intervene. And then the older brother walks up to the younger son and stops and looks at him. And the younger brother's bracing himself to be yelled at and thrown around. And instead, the younger brother embraces him. The camera then turns to the father. There's a tear in his eye. Very dramatic, if you can't tell. 
and then the camera pans out and there's dancing and singing and it's really great and that's how the story ends. Except, again, that's not what happens. It ends with a statement asking us to be happy for those who have come home. Jonah and the older brother were quick to point out that neither deserves grace, but they're very quick to take it. We're quick to point it out because we, don't have, we haven't done what they have done. We get uncomfortable around other people who sin, specifically those who sin differently than we do. We're okay to be around people who lie. We're okay to be around people who cheat. We're okay to be around people who steal. We get a bit uncomfortable, but we're more comfortable with them than we are with people who have committed uh, crimes against other people uh, physically, abusers. We're more comfortable around them than people who are homosexual. We're more comfortable uh, than them around people who are drug addicts if we've never tried drugs because they sin differently than we do. But the thing is, sin is still sin. And we're all sinners. There's not a hierarchy. I'm not better than somebody who's abused somebody. I'm not better in God's eyes than somebody who has uh, murdered somebody. I'm a sinner. I'm in the same group. Jesus died for me just as Jesus died for them. There's this, uh, there's this band. It's my favorite band. I don't really tell people it's my favorite band. Not because they're bad. It's just because nobody knows about them. And they're called Sleeping at Last. And when I've had a hard day at work, when I'm really wound up, when I'm really stressed, I like to listen to them. Such a beautiful band. Um, they have beautiful lyrics, beautiful music, very relaxing. And they, they did this, this album. They never actually really named their songs from a line in the chorus. You know how people do that? Like, bands do that. The name of their song, you can guess from the lyrics. These guys don't do it. They did a whole album called Enneagram, which is based on the personality types. Each song embraces that. And instead of it being, like, type A personality or that sort of stuff, they named it 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, but they never actually say the number in the song. And there's one called 1, and it's talking about the perfectionist people who strive for perfection to be loved. And there's a line in the song that made me nearly burst into tears because of how real it is. And it says, I've spent my whole life searching desperately only to find out that grace requires nothing of me. Jesus said to pull the plank from our own eyes before we pull the speck out of somebody else's. And it's something that we need to do today, not just because of the hard time that is currently falling in, but that's what Jesus has called us to do, even before any of these hardships have begun. We're all in the same boat as Jonah, and if we were to draw lots to see who's responsible for the storm, they would all be the same size. We need to get down on our knees and own up to our mistakes and not try to draw God's attention to someone else in hopes that it makes us look better. It won't, because God already knows. There was no warning. God hadn't told Jonah to be on standby, to go to a big mission. God woke Jonah up one morning and told him to go to his nation's enemy and warn them that if they didn't repent, then they'll be destroyed. He just told Jonah. The brother didn't even know about the party. We don't have to wait for God's grace. It doesn't include a convoluted plan of hoop jumping. It requires us to just simply participate 
and accept it and celebrate when other people also accept it. The younger brothers did. The Ninevites did. But Jonah was on the hill overlooking the city and the brother was outside. So my question is, where are you in this story? Are you going to have the Hollywood ending? God made Jonah very uncomfortable. Jesus' story made the listeners who saw themselves as the older son, who were probably sitting there going, yeah, the older son stayed. He stayed and therefore we would stay too. Therefore we should get a bigger reward. The people who saw themselves as the older son were uncomfortable because that's what the gospel is. The gospel is very, very uncomfortable. If you're comfortable with it, you're doing it wrong. You're understanding it wrong. I get uncomfortable with the gospel. I get uncomfortable with the whole concept of grace, with, with the fact that I'm like, I try my best every day to be who God wants me to be. And yet at the end of the day, someone else is going to get the same reward. There's days where it makes me feel very unchristian. But that's the whole point of the gospel, to be loving and uncomfortable. The Old Testament we look at as a punishing and angry God, but the story of Jonah shows that it's not because God extended his grace beyond Israel. He extended it to Nineveh. New Testament shows God as a loving and gracious God. But both of these stories, when we look at them together, show that he's the same God throughout the Bible. So may you join the saved city. May you join the massive party. May you celebrate the grace that God gives everyone. And may you realize that God wants to save everyone the way he saved you. And may you no longer worry about what the other person is doing.